everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal. This is the Friday, February 3rd edition, as brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Hope you are having a great afternoon. This is Andy Halp in for Mark Bedford. And we start off by taking a look at some of the headlines, and then we'll take a check of the weather before we get into the main material. Senate approves a school plan, 3% school funding hike making its way to Reynolds. Council Moles tax proposal. City looks at renewal of downtown partners taxing district. And Food Bank of Siouxland criticizes bills aimed at SNAP. Uh, those stories and more here in this reading, this Friday reading of the Sioux City Journal. But first, let's take a check of the forecast here for Sioux City and the north and west Iowa area. Well, you can expect for this afternoon, sunny conditions with a high near 18 degrees. Those winds from the south and southeast gusting as high as 25 miles per hour. For tonight, partly cloudy conditions, a low around 15. Again, uh, those winds gusting up there from the south and southeast up to 20 miles per hour, warming us up so that uh, tomorrow we can have a high of 34 degrees and mostly sunny conditions. Saturday night, expect mostly clear conditions, a low around 26. And for Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 35. But again, for this afternoon, your Friday, expect uh, sunny, sunny skies, sunny conditions, winds from the southeast, and a high of 18 degrees above. Well, starting off with our first story here, Senate approves school plan, 3% funding, school funding hike making its way to Reynolds. That's written by Aaron Murphy of the Journal Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines. Iowa's K-12 public schools will get a 3% increase in per-pupil state funding for the next school year under proposals from the Republican majorities in the House and Senate, larger than the increase sought by the governor, but smaller than what Democrats wanted. The Iowa Senate approved the funding proposal Thursday. The House will consider the proposal next week. Republicans there also are supporting a 3% increase. Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed budget published in January included a 2.5% increase in per-pupil K-12 public school funding. Republican legislative leaders said they have not discussed the increased funding level with, the, with Reynolds, and her office did not respond to a request for comment Thursday. The proposed legislation allocates $3.7 billion in general funding to Iowa's 327 K-12, or 327, what am I saying? I thought that was a title. My bad, everyone. I'm going to say this again. The proposed legislation allocates $3.7 billion in general funding to Iowa's 327 K-12 public school districts, an increase of nearly $124 million over the current year, according to an analysis by the state's nonpartisan legislative services agency. They just claim they're nonpartisan. I don't know. Iowa's total state general fund budget for the current budget year is roughly $8.2 billion. I'll start with the word conservative with no apology. We have a conservative budgeting policy, and people in increasing numbers sent us back to the Iowa House and Senate, said Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Oskaloosa who chairs the Senate's Education Committee. This reflects our conservatism. This is sustainable. Representative Pat Grassley, the House Speaker from New Hartford, said the House Rep Republicans also will support a 3% public school funding increase. We know that's something that works in the budget, Grassley told reporters Thursday. We thought that was a very, very solid number to be able to show support for our public school systems. 
Earlier this session, State House Republicans approved a new program that, at full implementation in four years, will each year make roughly $7,600 in state-funded private school aid available for any K-12 student in Iowa. The program is projected to cost the state $345 million annually. Democrats in the Senate this week proposed a public school funding increase of roughly 6%, which would amount to an additional $267 million. Democrats said that equals what Republicans have proposed for the new private school financial aid program this year, plus a reduction in corporate income taxes approved last year. Democrats pitched their proposal as an amendment to Republicans' bill. It was defeated mostly along party lines with Republican Senator Charlie McClintock of Al Burnett, voting with Democrats. Shortchanging Iowa's public schools is shortchanging the future of Iowa's kids. That's the inescapable truth, said Senator Herman Kornbach of Ames, the top Democrat of the Senate, Education Committee, and a former Iowa State University professor. We're proposing a different set of priorities. Our priorities and our obligations are to the public school students of Iowa, he said. Since Republicans regained at least partial control of the state lawmaking process in 2011, state general funding for public K-12 schools has increased by an average of 1.9% annually. Over the previous 38 years, under the current state school funding formula, that funding increased by an average of 5% annually, according to the legislative agency's data. The 3% increase proposed by legislative Republicans would be the second largest increase since 2011, trailing only the 4% increase implemented for the 2014-2015 school year, according to the data. Democrats argue the lower rates of annual funding increases over the past decade plus have not kept up with inflation, creating fiscal challenges for school districts. In addition to their proposed 6% increase per, in per-pupil funding, Democrats also pitched amendments that would fund all-day four-year-old preschool in all districts, funding boosts for special education programs, and per-pupil funding for low-income students. All were defeated on party-line votes. Similarly, the final vote on Senate File 192, or 192 was a party-line vote, 34 to 15, with Republicans supporting and Democrats opposing. In local front page news, we have Council Moles tax proposal. And the photo here shows the Virginia Square apartment building in downtown Sioux City. In 2018, the Self-Supported Municipal Improvement District, or abbreviated SSMID, boundary was expanded to include the Virginia Square area and other properties. There will be no change to the size of the SSMID this go-around or to its maximum tax levy. That's a photo here, and it shows it's by Jesse Brothers of the Sioux City Journal. It shows that... uh, Big old apartment building there. It looks like it was an old. It was. It was an old factory. I can't tell what it says. There's something written on the side of it. Sales room, mattress factory, or something like that. Some downtown building that people think is cool to live in now. Hey, let's get together and go live in an old factory. But hey, that's some people. Whatever. This story written by Dolly A. Butts. City looks at renewal of downtown partners taxing district. Dateline Sioux City. 
For the sixth time since 1993, the process to renew downtown partners taxing district for another five years is underway. The Planning and Zoning Commission greenlighted the district in December. The Sioux City Council is expected to discuss renewal at its weekly meeting on Monday. Downtown Partners is an organization that promotes business interests in the historic core of the city. The organization, which has two full-time staff members, operates through a self-supported Municipal Improvement District, or SSMID, in which property owners pay an extra tax to fund the organization's budget. Reagan Cote, executive director of Downtown Partners, said there will be no change to the size of SSMID this go-around or to its maximum tax levy, which is $2.25 per $1,000 of assessed valuation. Downtown Partners currently has a budget of roughly $352,000, which funds improvements, marketing, and other expenses. I think we've had a really big business focus in the last couple of years, as you'll see with all the new development downtown, more with storefront grants and our rent relief program to try to recruit business and also make facades look good with that money, Coach said. So really trying to focus on aesthetics and targeting business recruitment. In 2018, the SSMID boundary was expanded, but the levy was not increased at that time either. Doc's Warehouse, Bar, and the Virginia Square area were among the properties that were added back then. Downtown partners must request renewal of the district every five years through a petition of property owners. State law requires signatures of at least 25% of the taxing district's property owners and a representation of at least 25% of the district's land value to move forward with district renewal. In November, Cody said downtown partners turned in signed petitions with a 78% approval from ownership and an 88% approval of value. The property owners are happy with what we're doing. I think that's wonderful, she said. We've had years where it was 60% in the early 2000s. This is really great that they're seeing what we're doing is working and they approve of what levy we're putting forward. Food Bank, this is our third story of the front page, our third and final, before we move on to more news further down. Food Bank of Siouxland criticizes bills aimed at SNAP. This is written by Jared McNett, Dateline Sioux City. The Food Bank of Siouxland voiced its disapproval this week for a pair of bills, one in the Iowa House and one in the Iowa Senate, that would place added restrictions on the food assistance program known as SNAP. Under proposals from Republican state legislators, low-income people seeking to utilize the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program would need to work at least 20 hours a week and would be subject to additional identity verification. Both bills will make it difficult for those who need food assistance to qualify for SNAP and stay on the program, impeding progress toward self-sufficiency, the Food Bank of Siouxland said in a statement. There are exceptions to the proposed work requirement for people who are pregnant, medically certified as physically or mentally unfit for employment, caretakers for dependent children under age one, parents to kids with serious medical conditions and disabilities, participating in treatment and rehab programs, or receiving compensation with other work requirements. But the food bank noted there are individuals and families in the region not addressed by those exceptions who could be impacted by the changes Iowa House File 3 and Senate Bill 1105 would bring about. Families who have two vehicles would be restricted from SNAP most likely right away, 
In many of the counties in northwest Iowa, public transportation between towns or communities is non-existent. Vehicles are needed to get to places of employment, school, and the grocery store, etc., the food bank said. Various items make up assets and should not be an indicator of a family or individual's food needs. Intent. Well, Representative Tom Janiri, Republican of Lamar's, who ran a hearing on the changes, said the intent is to ensure continued viability of the food assistance programs. These programs provide a necessary safety net for low-income Iowans, and the legislature wants to make sure that Iowans receiving assistance from these programs are truly eligible, he said. A January 27th piece from the Journal's Des Moines Bureau noted House Republicans moved the SNAP bill just two days after approving $345 million in new state spending on private school financial aid, a program that has no income restrictions. Janiri is one of five Siouxland representatives whose name appears on the House bill. The others are Representative Stephen Holt of Denison, Skyler Wheeler of Hull, John Willis of Spear Lake, and Jacob Bossman of Sioux City. Jeff Edler, a Republican of State Center, is the chairperson of the State Senate Committee on Health and Human Services proposing the bill. Funding for SNAP comes from by the federal government and is jointly administered by the federal and state governments to individuals and families who meet income restrictions. In budget year 2020, Iowa's share of administrative costs for SNAP totaled $22 million. The state's average administrative cost of $27.84 per case per month is the 18th lowest among U.S. states, according to federal data. When similar rules were rescinded in Pennsylvania, the state state saved just over $3 million while adding 100,000 people back to the program, the Food Bank of Siouxland said. Impacts. Through the end of the week of January 22, 2023, the bill still had language limiting SNAP users to only foods approved for the WIC program, Women, Infants, Children program for expected mothers. Such a move would take meat, fish, poultry, and nuts off the table. However, Republicans have said they plan to amend that language and eliminate only candy and soft drinks, except for zero-calorie beverages. In a state which prides itself on the production of pork, turkey, and chicken, among others, it is disheartening to see these items cut from the list of choices, the food bank said of the suggestion. In 2022, about 279,000 Iowans made use of the SNAP program each and every month. Overhauls to the assistance structure would require federal approval. That same year, the Food Bank of Siouxland helped distribute about 275 million meals. So that's our final front page story. Moving on now to page A2 and Puxatawney Phil, who they possibly might just have to feed to a dog. Phil's Groundhog Day prediction, six more weeks of winter in 2023. Hungry Rottweilers, listen up. Dateline, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. A furry critter in a western Pennsylvania town has predicted six more weeks of winter during an annual Groundhog Day celebration. People gathered Thursday at Gobbler's Knob as members of Puxatawney Phil's inner circle summoned the groundhog. <laughs> such a, it's such a weird tradition. Summoned the groundhog from his tree stump. <laughs> sorry. At dawn to learn if he had seen his shadow, and they say he did. According to folklore, if he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. If he doesn't, spring comes early. 
The inner circle is a group of local dignitaries who are responsible for planning the events, as well as feeding and caring for Phil himself. No wonder he's so chubby. He's had a bunch of people feeding him. He doesn't have to go out of his, his little stump there. The, the annual event in Puxatawney, about 65 miles northeast of Pittsburgh, originated from a German legend about a furry... <laughs> a German legend about a furry rodent. The gathering annually attracts thousands. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration compared Puxatawney Phil's forecast to the national weather the last 10 years and found on average Phil has gotten it right 40% of the time. 40% of the time. But why do they keep doing it? This year, Phil's prediction came during a week when a mess of ice, sleet, and snow has lingered across much of the southern U.S., According to records dating back to 1887, Phil has predicted winter more than 100 times. Ten years were lost because no records were kept, organizers said. The 2021 and 2022 forecasts also called for six more weeks of winter. While Puxatawney Phil may be the most famous groundhog seer, he's certainly not the only one. New York City Staten Island Chuck made his prediction for an early spring during an event Thursday at the Staten Island Zoo. Phil and Chuck are among a broad selection of rodents that purportedly predict weather. Maybe we should just put him on TV then. He can do the uh, nightly news. Here's a, ro- <laughs> Here's a rodent to tell you it's going to be sunny tomorrow. All right, moving on to more serious news. Bill would pair frequency of concussion training. Supporters say requirement for yearly training is unnecessary. This written by Tom Barton of the Journal Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines, Iowa. Iowa coaches would be required to receive training once every five years instead of annually on how to identify and respond to a student athlete with a suspected concussion under a bill advanced Wednesday by a House Education Subcommittee. Current rules adopted by the State Board of Educational Examiners require annual concussion training for renewal of a K-12 coaching license. Coaching in Iowa, either paid or volunteer, requires a valid authorization or endorsement. The bill would change that to every five years to coincide with renewal of their coaching authorization from the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners. Emily Piper, a lobbyist for the Iowa Association of School Boards, which is registered in favor of the bill, said the yearly training is repetitive and unnecessary and noted that required recertification for cardiopulmonary resuscitation is done every two years. We believe that having the training once every five years upon their authorization renewal is sufficient, Piper told the subcommittee. Our goal on all trainings is to take a look at how we can reduce the frequency of them, but still provide the training that is necessary for the safety of students and athletes. Vic Miller, president of the Iowa Athletic Trainers Society, contends it's important for coaches, many of whom lack access to athletic trainers on a regular basis, to have a yearly refresher to protect the health and welfare of student-athletes. So they are the sole people that are responsible for identifying possible concussions for student-athletes, Miller of Ankeny told subcommittee members. And we feel that just as simple annual training should stay that way so that these coaches can make the best decisions for the student-athletes. Miller said such training is required on an annual basis at various collegiate and professional levels as well. So let's keep these coaches informed, Miller said. I think more education is always, always a good thing. Leslie Carpenter of Iowa Mental Health Advocacy echoed Miller. 
Carpenter is a retired physical therapist and parent of a student athlete who has seen a very serious concussion playing volleyball in high school. Far too often, coaches have no idea the dangers and the limitations that can happen as a result of a concussion, Carpenter said, and there's far too little protection of the student athletes. The Brain Injury Alliance is registered against the bill. However, a lobbyist for the group twice told lawmakers during the hearing that it supported the proposal. We are supportive of this legislation as the practice of concussion identification, management, and return to play protocol is ever evolving, said lobbyist Chelsea Hoy. In addition, concussions are mild brain injuries and yet critically have impacts on diverse medical, cognitive, and educational success. Subcommittee member Representative Tracy Ellert, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, questioned whether concussion training would become more extensive. Representative Tom Moore, Republican of Griswold, chair of the subcommittee, said he did not foresee such a need. It isn't one of those things that just goes away, said Moore, a retired teacher and football coach. You don't forget about your concussion protocols and the health and welfare of your athletes. We need to look at dot, 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 the quote says, when it's actually needed, as opposed to just checking the box that it's getting done, Moore said. Doug Strike, S-T-R-U-Y-K, Strike, a lobbyist representing the Trainer Society, said he worries the bill places expediency above that of advice from medical experts. I think erring on the side of actually going through every year and being ready to spot these things is not a bad direction to go, Strike said. I think we should be following what healthcare providers are saying in looking at this, and not educators. Moore said he has mixed feelings on the bill. But I also don't believe our coaching staffs are ill-equipped to handle these things. Speaking from my own experience, there isn't a coach out there that is going to jeopardize the health of their student, Moore said. These coaches are taking care of their kids. Even though the training may be online and simple to get, I don't see it as being a matter of expediency. I see it as a matter of being unnecessary annually to be done. At the same time, Moore said he's unsure whether five years is the right time frame. The subcommittee advanced the bill to the full House Education Committee with Ellert declining to sign off on the bill. And they have one correction published here in the paper. Of record, more than 80 wrestlers take part in in Hinton's youth wrestling program, which is called the Math Hawks or Mat Hawks. A story which ran online. On story on page B1 of Thursday's journal under the headline, Hinton makes first trip to state duels, misspelled the name of the program. Okay. On that serious note, after that correction, serious, serious error. They misspelled something. No, not so much. Uh, Happens all the time. Touring production of Hairspray has staying power. This written by Bruce Miller. On page uh, two here of the Sioux City Journal. Hairspray still holds up. Hopping into the Orpheum Theater Wednesday night, the national touring production of the Broadway hit was blessed with great performances, bouncy choreography, and a renewed sense of snark that somehow plays better now, 20 years after its premiere. Key to its staying power, the show's book by Mark O'Donnell and Thomas Meehan, and lyrics by Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman. Referring plenty of 60s icons and adding a wink to every innuendo, this hairspray was 
able to glide from one infectious number to another. And then there was the matter of casting. Like Divine in the John Walters original and Harvey Firestein in the Broadway original, Edna Turnblad is played by a man. In this case, Andrew Levitt, who, surprise, surprise, played Divine in Weird, the Al Yankovic story. Levitt delivered, giving some of the lines the old Harvey twist and playing up the draggier aspects of the concept. Directed by Matt Lenz, the production relied on Robbie Roby's choreography to fill in what wasn't there in terms of sets. Many scenes, in fact, were done in front of a huge screen that morphed into all sorts of 60s pop art. The few set pieces and props merely augmented what the actors were already bringing. In a throwback to the days of American Bandstand, Tracy is one of those teens who longs for a spot on the Corny Collins show. When an opening arises, she sees it as her way to get out of the humdrum life of Baltimore and possibly bragging rights as one of the nicest kids in town. She auditions and becomes the target for Queen Bee Amber Vaughn Tussle, played by Ryan Evers, and her mother, Velma, played by Addison Garner. Amber's boyfriend, Link Larkin, Nick Cortazzo, becomes a point of contention when he shows interest in Tracy's mad dancing skills. When Tracy proposes every day should be uh, Negro Day, the battle begins and doesn't let up until Miss Teenage Hairspray until the Miss Teenage Hairspray contest. Pretty straightforward, right? Wait a minute. The black-white divide becomes a key plot point and a source of much of the musical soul. Sandy Lee, as Motormouth Mabel, got two opportunities to bring down the house with numbers that reference the story's underlying segregation theme. She gave I Know Where I've Been the heft hairspray needed particularly since so much of it is constructed for hit-and-run humor. While the show is almost impossible to botch, this production did have opportunities to impress. Garner took advantage of hers as the show's villain and tossed in a baton-twirling exhibition that was so good she could win the Iowa State Fair talent show. Metcalf, of course, was essential to making this work. She kicked it in high gear and never let up. In play with the others, she was the catalyst for just about everything. That was a tall order, but she delivered and got Hairspray's goodness to linger. Anyway, that's a review on Hairspray, the play at the Orpheum Theater. In the briefs section here on page two, Sioux City man charged with assault. Dateline Sioux City. A Sioux City man has been arrested on suspicion of assaulting another man with a baseball bat and taking a pair of shoes. Julian McLean is suspected in the January 22nd attack on the man in a motel room at 1910 Court Street. According to court documents, McLean and another man forced their way into the room, hit the man with a bat, causing a cut to his head, and left with the shoes. A surveillance video shows McLean entering the room while trying to conceal the bat. Seconds later, McLean left the room swinging the bat around and his accomplice holding a pair of white shoes. McLean, age 46, was arrested Wednesday and booked into the Woodbury County Jail on charges of first-degree burglary and going armed with intent. He is being held on a $25,000 bond. After his arrest, he admitted to police there was a dispute over the shoes and he had brought a bat to the motel, but he said he was invited into the room and, doesn't assault, and didn't assault the victim, court records said. Man sentenced for federal prison for selling meth. Dateline Sioux City. 
A Sioux City man has been sentenced to more than four years in federal prison for selling methamphetamine. Matthew Antonovich, age 39, pleaded guilty in June in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to felon in possession of a firearm and conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. He was sentenced Wednesday to 50 months in prison, 55 months in prison, and must serve three years on supervised release after completing his prison sentence. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Antonovich admitted to selling meth in the Sioux City area and also possessing a short-barreled shotgun. Biden urges unity at prayer breakfast under new management. That's written by Colleen Long and Chris Majerian of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. Joe Biden delivered a message of unity at the National Prayer Breakfast on Thursday, the first time the annual event has been held since its leadership and structure were overhauled to distance itself from the controversial private religious group, from a controversial private religious group. In our politics and in our lives, we too often see each other as opponents and not comp- what? As components and not competitors. All right. Continue here. We see each other as enemies and not neighbors, Biden said. And as tough as these times have been, if we look closer, we see the strength, the determination that has long defined America. The breakfast was held at the Capitol's Visitor Center, and the auditorium's 450 seats were packed with members of Congress, government officials, and others. Every president since Dwight D. Eisenhower has spoken at the breakfast, which in past years has been attended by thousands. For decades, the event was overseen by the International Foundation, a Christian organization that has drawn increasing scrutiny over the years. Now, the event is run by the National Prayer Breakfast Foundation, a new group led by former members of Congress. The International Foundation held its own event at a nearby hotel where Biden's speech was being watched remotely. Welcome to all 1,300, Biden said, or 1,300, I'm not sure how he said it. Welcome to all 1,300, a reference to the size of the crowd at the other breakfast. It was his only acknowledgement during the public program to changes behind the scenes. The event is designed to bring people together across partisan lines, and Biden sat next to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California. The two are beginning a showdown over whether to raise the country's debt limit to avoid a default. We had a good meeting yesterday, Biden said of McCarthy, saying they would work to treat each other with respect. Also present was Carrie Lake the Republican candidate for Arizona governor. She has uh, not conceded in her race in Arizona. Biden has denounced election denial as a threat to American democracy. Quoting scripture, Biden said it was important to love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the hardest one, I think he said. At least it's hardest here. I did, it didn't used to be as hard. I've been here a long time, but it seems to be getting harder. All right, if you could understand any of that, just know that this is the halfway point, or at least we're past it now, of the Sioux City Journal here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. All of our programs heard on IRIS are intended for the use of our audience. We thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, give us a call at the office, 515 515- Two four three six eight three three. And now let's take a look at today's obituaries for this Friday, February the 3rd. We have three obituaries in today's edition. The first for Doris Mortensen of Lamar's. 
Age 89, died Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Celebration of life will be held February 4th at 11 a.m., that's tomorrow, at the St. John's Lutheran Church in Lamar's. Burial will be in the Rest Haven Memory Gardens in Lamar's. Visitation is from 10 a.m. until service time on Saturday at the church and resumes following services. Arrangements are with the Rex Winkle Funeral Home in Lamar's. From there, we go to Suzanne Eileen Schley, age 43, of Mapleton, Iowa, died Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Services are February 4th. At 10.30 a.m., that's Saturday, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Mapleton. Burial uh, is following the services at St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Mapleton. Visitation is today, 4 to 7 p.m., at the church. Arrangements are with the Armstrong Van Houten Funeral Home of Mapleton. And finally, last but not least, Darlene J. Lux of Hartley, Iowa, age 93, died Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Services are February 6th, that's Monday, at 10.30 a.m. at St. Paul's Lutheran Church of Hartley. Burial is in the Pleasant View Cemetery of Hartley. Visitation is February 5th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Hartley Funeral Home. Moving on now to the opinion section. We have some printed here. Uh, we'll read this one to you. Conservatives Defending Progressive Writer in Court. It was written by Cynthia M. Allen. At first glance, Priscilla Viriel is not a particularly empathetic figure. Not to most conservatives, anyway. The tattooed, foul-mouthed progressive citizen journalist has made a name and career out of criticizing and, frankly, trying to embarrass local authorities in Laredo, Texas. Her Facebook page... La Gore de Loca News of Laredo, Texas, which has more than 200,000 followers, is running profanity-laced and often scathing commentary of the happenings in her community. That is perhaps why it is so striking and extremely important that a coalition of conservative groups has come to her defense in the case regarding her right to do her work. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals recently held a hearing on Villarreal's 2019 lawsuit against the city of Laredo, its police department, and others in authority who she said violated her First Amendment rights for doing what journalists do, asking questions. Thankfully, an impressive collection of nonprofits, including the Alliance Defending Freedom, Americans for Prosperity, Young America's Foundation, and Project Veritas, yes, have filed briefs on her behalf, adding to the credibility of her case and amplifying what it means for the future of free speech in the U.S. It all began in 2017 when Villarreal's reporting landed her in jail. Local authorities, already no fans of her work, used an obscure Texas statute to claim that Villarreal had obtained non-public information from the government with the intent to benefit herself. The information was verification of identities she already had sourced elsewhere. One was a Border Patrol agent who died by suicide, and the others were a family involved in a deadly vehicle accident. The alleged benefit was gaining more Facebook followers. While Villarreal is no conventional journalist and Facebook is no conventional reporting mechanism, asking a government official to verify the details of a story already sourced elsewhere before publishing it actually is actually what good journalism looks like. Yeah. 
and how the benefit of gaining new followers is materially different from generating more clicks or increasing subscriptions and important motivation of professional news outlets, journalists in the digital era. I cannot tell you. So Villarreal was effectively targeted by authorities and jailed, not for her actions, but for her opinions, something that should make the hair on the on the neck of every freedom-loving American stand on end. Villarreal's charges were eventually dropped. The law used to prosecute her was deemed unconstitutionally vague. But thankfully for free speech, she didn't allow it to end there. She sued, but a federal district court threw out her case, finding that in jailing Villarreal, the officers had qualified immunity, the legal doctrine that protects public officials from facing civil suits in certain circumstances. A three-judge panel for the Fifth Circuit found differently. Writing for the majority, Judge James C. Ho did not mince words. If the First Amendment means anything, it surely means that a citizen journalist has the right to ask a public official a question without fear of being imprisoned. Drop the mic. It should be obvious also that this kind of flagrant free speech violation, throwing someone in jail for asking questions of government, is the stuff of conservative dystopian nightmares. This makes the Fifth Circuit's decision to bring the case to the full court, opening the possibility the judges will overturn the panel's ruling, all the more troubling, especially because the Fifth Circuit is generally considered to be one of the more conservative circuits. We can hope that the powerhouse of organizations, which includes journalism groups as well as the aforementioned conservative nonprofits, filing briefs on Villarreal's behalf will have some impact. And we can't forget the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a frequent defender of conservative speech on college campuses that is representing Villarreal in her case. We can also hope that when a legal challenge is made by a conservative citizen journalist, the next time Project Veritas' James O'Keefe gets sideways with law enforcement for surreptitiously recording the wrong person, progressive-leaning free speech organizations will come to the defense. Our commonalities might end at our opinions, but we should agree that we all have a right to express them. Fingers crossed that the Fifth Circuit will agree. Well, Cynthia M. Allen writes for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. She can be reached at c-m-a-l-l-e-n at star-telegram.com. Moving on now to the sports section. Eight Northwest Iowa girl wrestlers still in contention. This written by Dave Driesen. Dateline Coralville, Iowa. With two rounds in the books and more to come later Thursday, eight wrestlers from Northwest Iowa remained in contention for state titles at the first Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Tournament. Action started Thursday morning in front of a sellout crowd at the Extreme Arena in Coralville. Two Ridgeview wrestlers, Tatum Shepard at 125 pounds and Izzy Deeds at 145 pounds, and two from Spencer, Kaylee Nack. Tegal at 190 and Spencer's Olivia Huckfelt at 235 all won their first two matches to get to the quarterfinals. Sioux City North, Molly Seck at 115, Shaley Sutherland of Spencer at 125, Louise Meyer of Central Lion, George Little Rock at 170, West Lions, Jana Terwee at 190 also advanced to the quarters. A total of six Ridgeview wrestlers remained alive for medals as the Raptors compiled 28 points to sit in ninth place in the team standings. Seven Spencer wrestlers also are still in contention 
with the Tigers netting 24 points for 12th place. Through wrestlebacks, competitors who lose their first match can still score valuable team points. Waverly Shell Rock compiled 46 points to sit atop a close team race in the early action. Nine of the team's wrestlers who qualified for state are still in contention for a medal. There we go to a basketball story. Dort knocks off Mustangs. And the headline photo shows Dort's Lucas Lorenzen driving to the basket as Morningside's Jack Dotzler defends him during Wednesday night's game in the Sioux, in Sioux Center, Iowa. Defenders gain tie for second in GPAC with Morningside. That's written by journal staff, Dateline, Sioux Center, Iowa. The Dort men's basketball team moved into a tie for second place in the GPAC after knocking off the number 18 ranked Mustangs at home 101 to 89 Wednesday. The defenders never trailed as they built a double figure late in the first half and withstood a late run by the Mustangs. Dort led by as many as 15 in the opening half, shooting 53% from the floor and 47% from the beyond the arc as they took 49 to 37 advantage uh, at the intermission. Two early three-point shots in the second half by Cade Bleeker extended the advantage to 55 to 41, and the lead grew to as many as 20, 63 to 43, on a Lucas Lorenzen three-point shot. Morningside made a late push, getting within 91 to 82, with two minutes and 18 seconds left in the game, and within six, 95 to 89, with a minute and eight seconds remaining. A pair of Bryce Kopic free throws put Dort up three possessions, and Kopic stole the ball near midcourt and finished with a layup to put Dort up 99 to 89. Jackson Lauscher sealed it with two late free throws for the final of 101 to 89. Kopic finished with 26 points and was 11 to 12 from the three, 11 and 12 from the free throw line. He also had six rebounds and four assists with two steals. Bleeker made three three-point shots and finished with, uh, with um, 17 points. Lucas Lorenzen added 15 and had five rebounds with two assists. Jacob Vies scored 14 with 20 rebounds and four blocked shots. Dort was 31-60 from the field from 52% and 28-33 from the free throw line while converting 11-25 three-point baskets. Morningside was 30-69 from the field and 4-17 from the arc. The Mustangs stayed in the game with near-perfect free throw shooting as they made 25-26. Eli Doble led the Mustangs with 24 points and 5 rebounds. Aiden Vanderloo added 19 points off the bench. Jack Dotzler and Joey Scoff also scored in double figures, tallying 14 and 12 points respectively. Dort is now 18 and 5 overall and 10 and 5 in the conference with 5 games to go. Morningside is 10 and 5 and 16 and 6. Morningside fell to 16 and 6 overall and 10 and 5 in the G-Pack. Dort improved to an identical 10-5 in the league and 18-5 overall. The Mustangs will look to rebound Saturday in Alley Gymnasium against their crosstown rivals. Morningside and Briarcliff renew their rivalry with a 3.45 in the afternoon scheduled tip-off. Dort will travel to Concordia on Saturday.
And one final sports story here. Dort women earn sweep of Mustangs. Defenders win 22nd game, stay in first in GPAC. This is written by journal staff, Dateline, Sioux Center, Iowa. The Dort women's basketball team won its 22nd contest of the season with a 77-67 win at home over Morningside Wednesday night. The number four ranked defenders took the lead for good late in the first quarter and held Morningside scoreless over an eight-minute stretch to take control of the contest. The game was tied 11-11 when Shays Fan Steele knocked down a free throw with four minutes and 28 seconds left in the first quarter for the Mustangs' last lead of the game. Macy Sievers converted a pair of free throws with two minutes and six seconds left for a 13-12 Dort lead. And a Carly Gustafson basket put Dort ahead 15-12 entering the second quarter. Dort added an e- Elena... Cooperus basket and a Sievers basket to open the second period, and Gustafson's uh, hoop with six minutes and 17 seconds put uh, Dort up 21 to 12. Morningside ended the drought at the six-minute, five-second mark, and the lead was 28 to 21 at halftime as both teams struggled to sub 40% field goal success in the first half. The teams traded early baskets in the second half, and it was Hayden. Hymanson hitting her first of two three-point shots to put Dort up by double digits. Morningside fought back to within 43 to 40, uh, 38, 43 to 38, but got no closer as the defenders held a 50 to 45 lead at the quarter break. Van Holland converted a three-point shot for some breathing room, and Bailey Beckman had back to pull to back pull-up jumpers, and Morningside got no closer than 10 the rest of the game, and Dort made it a season sweep of the Mustangs. Dort was led by Gustafson's 18 points on 6-9 and nine shooting, but she also had 5 rebounds and 2 assists. Faith Van Hollen added 13 points with 7 rebounds and 2 assists, and Bailey Beckman scored 12, all in the second half with 3 steals. Hayden Hymanson added 10 with two assists, and Macy Sievers came off the bench to score 11 with five rebounds and three steals. Dort converted 28 and 53 field goals in the game and was 17 and 21 in the second half. Morningside was limited to 23 and 56 shooting and had a 34 to 30 rebounding advantage. Both teams turned the ball over 16 times. The Mustangs saw Alexis Spire rebound from an off game at the College of St. Mary to lead the way in scoring with 19 points. Olivia Larson followed with 14. McKenna Sims had 10. Larson led the way when it came to rebounds with 6. The Mustangs, who fell to 14-9 overall and 9-8 and in the conference, returned to action Saturday at home against rival Briar Cliff. Dort, which improved to 22-1 overall and 16-1 and in the league, will travel to face Concordia on Saturday. And finally, here in the faith section, it would be on page D4, Church helps mining community evolve in the dark Arctic. Life in this Norwegian village has long revolved around its only church. Dateline, Long Year Bane, Norway, or Long Year Bine, Norway. It's written by Giovanna Del Torto of the Associated Press. The warm glow of Svalbard, Kirk's 
lights gleams in the snow-covered mountain slope from where the church stands like a beacon over the remote Norwegian Arctic village, cloaked in the polar night's constant darkness. A century after it was founded to minister to coal miners who settled long, longer buy-in, Lutheran House of Faith is open 24-7, serving as a crucial gathering point for a community navigating a drastic change in its identity. The last Norwegian coal mine in Svalbard, an archipelago, that's one of the world's fastest warming spots, was slated to close this year, but only got a reprieve until 2025 because of the energy crisis driven by the war in Ukraine. For the lone pastor in this fragile, starkly beautiful environment, the challenge is to fulfill the church's historical mission of ministering to those in crisis while addressing a pressing and divisive contemporary challenge. We pray every Sunday for everyone who is afflicted by climate change, the Reverend Siv Limstrand said. We also have a role to play as church when it comes to thinking theologically about what we are doing to the creation. On treeless land hemmed by glaciers, mountains, and deep fjords, Longyearbyen is a town of visible paradoxes. The open water of the rapidly warming sea laps up against the old coal mining conveyors. Tourists come by the environmentally unfriendly plane load to seek pristine wilderness they can only explore with guides armed against polar bears. Right below where the first mine was built, Svalbard Kirk beckons to its fireplace-warmed lounge that opens into the sanctuary. A cup of coffee or hymn books in multiple languages are always available as long as visitors first remove their shoes in the entryway, as miners used to do with soot-covered boots. You don't have to be very religious. They have room for everybody, said Leonard Snokes, whose daughter sings in Polar Gospel, the church's children's choir, and whose wife is working on the city's transition to renewable energy. The switch this year from coal-fired to diesel-powered energy production at the plant, which prompted the mine's original decision to shut down, is expected to have carbon dioxide emissions even as the search for long-term cleaner alternatives continues said Torborn Grotti, Longyear Bynes Energy Transition Project Leader. As change swirls faster than the snowdrifts covering Longyear Bynes' few miles of paved roads, the church's anchoring role seems poised to remain the only constant. It attracts miners who have attended funerals for colleagues who have died on the job over the decades, as well as newly arrived scientists and tourism workers seeking to integrate in the increasingly diverse community where people now tend to stay only a couple of years. Stor Norsk, the Norwegian company still operating the remaining mine, built the first church in 1921 in Longyearbyen, which translates as the town of Longyear. The surname of the American who established the first mining operation here. For decades, the town's two supreme authorities were the mine's executive and the church's pastor, old-timers say. The first pastor was also the teacher in the company town that for most of the 20th century was inhabited by single miners and the mining executives' families. Outside town limits, a few trappers continued to hunt, a long tradition in these glacier-covered islands. Miners and their families also made up the Russian towns of Svalbard. At the surviving one, Barrettsburg, Coal is still extracted under a century-old international treaty that grants rights to all signatory countries. Relations, relations with Ulongyearbyen, which had normalized after the end of the Cold War as miners traded visits by boat and snowmobile, 
have been strained by Russia's invasion of Ukraine nearly a year ago. And this is a long article. I'll finish it off here. The pastor herself travels to celebrate services beyond the church, including once at Green Dog, a dog sledding outfit half a dozen miles from Longyear Bayan in a broad valley. How many priests can you ask to come to a dog yard in minus 11 degrees Celsius, 12 degrees Fahrenheit, to baptize two kids? Said their mother, Karina Burnlow, who runs Green Dog with her husband and arrived in Svalbard 11 years ago after a stint in Greenland. All right, interesting stuff there. A little Lutheran church in the middle of the ice. Very interesting indeed. But that ends all the time that we have for this episode of the Sioux City Journal here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Thank you so much for listening and being here. This is Andrew Haupt filling in, hoping you have a nice day straight ahead.